Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at re-nourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. Welcome to Climify. I'm Eric Benson, and I'll be your host this season as we talk to climate experts from all over the world to help us design educators fight the climate crisis in our classrooms. And yes, I'm also a design educator. I've been teaching for 15 years here at the University of Illinois. But even if you're not a design educator listening to this show, there's so much useful information jam-packed in each that you too can learn how to do your part to help reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Today, I'm excited to have on the program, Catherine Poole. Catherine Poole is a climate change specialist and designer with a master's in climate and society from Columbia University. Most recently, she led the brand design for Twitter and climate journalist, Eric Holthouse, new local weather service called Currently. She's focused on giving climate change the rebrand it deserves by integrating climate action with design. You can follow Catherine on Twitter at Catherine Poole. That's K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E-P-O-O-L-E. And you can find her online at CatherinePoole.me. So Catherine, it's, it's wonderful to meet you. I'm glad that you're here. And uh, so let's get started really with the basics. You know, who are you? <laughs> what do you do and, how, and where do you do it? I'm a climate change specialist and designer. I have a master's from the Climate and Society program at Columbia University, where I studied the intersection of climate and how it impacts the people, and places, and things that we all care about. Um, currently, I'm specializing in brand design and content creation some communication strategy for climate-related organizations and campaigns. Previous to that, uh, I was teaching climate mitigation and adaptation at Columbia University and also at a climate education nonprofit. And most recently I was working, and currently I'm working with Twitter and climate journalist, Eric Holhouse doing brand design for their new collaborative weather service uh, called Currently. That's amazing. It's you're the perfect guest because you <laughs> know both things that we're we wanting to talk about today: climate and and design. And so, how did you get involved in in design then? Um, and how are you uh, navigating working in both both fields, kind of at the same time? I got into design because I felt that the issue with climate change was more of a messaging issue than a scientific mm -hmm. issue. And the only way to really communicate that is to have visuals and assets and campaigns that really emphasize not only the human aspect of climate change, but the scale and severity. I think oftentimes we don't talk about climate. It's kind of a, 
a silent issue uh, that's changed in the past few years due to you know youth climate movements and also more serious politicians that are mm -hmm. trying to focus on it a little bit more um but yeah that that's how i got into design i i'm pretty self-taught i i love youtube i love taking <laughs> design courses um i love learning from other people and in grad school we touched a lot on design thinking and i think that was a big influence into me recognizing that that was a big way to solve climate change is to kind of use design wisely and respectfully in a way that works with communities but also you know really does a powerful job at advertising the issue and what we need to do yeah, so you said it's a communication issue. Mm. So how, how do you think um, design can, can help fix that communication issue? I think climate change needs a rebrand. I think that's really the key here. Um, climate change is pretty, in my opinion, uh, elitist sometimes and has a little bit of a, an issue where climate scientists are oftentimes talking to themselves. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of wonderful climate communicators that's for sure but i think that for the most part you know people aren't reading academic texts uh, they're not reading the ipcc report they are looking online they're looking at social media they're looking at the companies they you know follow and and uh, consume from to kind of reflect what's going on they're looking at meteorologists when the weather gets crazy. Right. Um, and there's so few meteorologists that are making that clear connection and explicit connection between climate and weather. Um, so I think it's just not integrated necessarily into our communication structures. And you can see that, you know, based on the failure sometimes of uh, international climate negotiations, as well as the... <laughs> the lack of climate questions in almost like every, you know, presidential debate, uh, mayoral debate. And, you know, this is something that's gonna impact everybody, uh, whether they like it or not. And I think it's a lot easier to not talk about it, but mm -hmm. it's also almost disrespectful not to talk about it, right? When people are already dealing with climate change currently, uh, there are a lot of people right. who are bearing the brunt of climate change first and they're not necessarily in the global north but i think the global north is obviously you know super complicit and also responsible for the situation that we find ourselves in so it's important to keep talking about it and, and listen to not only the youth who are doing a great job at advocating for a livable future but also the the people who are being impacted right now, I think they're often ignored and climate change is viewed as a, a later issue or a future problem, but it has been a problem. It is a problem and will continue to get worse unless we start really taking it more seriously and communicate better. Yeah, I mean, I love that idea of the, the rebrand and that's, <laughs> you know. We can, We're trying. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that kind of leads me to my, my next, question for you is that I'm really interested in how you got involved in all of, in your environmental justice and climate work. Everyone that I've talked to on this program and then out in the world that is involved with social justice, environmental justice issues, had something 
that you know stirred stirred them or some epiphany or something that they couldn't unsee and i'm wondering how you got interested in this and, and why i don't think climate change was really ever on my radar until i lived in new orleans and um, in louisiana they're geographically very vulnerable to climate change right so i think that really reinforced the urgency of mitigating and adapting to climate change um, just by living there. You know, I, I constantly encountered reminders of destruction and unpreparedness from city officials, um, from environmental disasters that really tested the resilience of the city and are kind of a perfect example of what will happen to other cities as well. Um, I, I think probably the, the, the real factor in me getting interested in climate change was uh, taking a climate science course and listening to my professor uh, at Tulane advocate for immediate action while I was very aware that I was sitting in a classroom that was probably going to be underwater during my lifetime. Um, it was jarring and pretty traumatic, to be honest, but it was also motivating because I felt like I almost had more of a purpose by understanding the severity of the situation. And, you know, I learned a lot about the historical and current environmental injustice issues in Louisiana, of which there are too many, and got an understanding of how it mentally and emotionally, physically, and socially impacted residents. Um, when you live there, it's pretty hard not to feel terrified during hurricane season. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of underlying anxiety. Even when it rains, it floods. Um, you know, people lose their cars every time it rains and have real issues that aren't necessarily attributed to climate, but are impacted by climate. And I was lucky enough to witness firsthand all the land loss and cultural loss that we've had through the protective wetlands disappearing at extraordinary speeds. Um, and that's because of decades of oil development. Um, and they have the oil and gas industry has a pretty big hold on the state. So it was really interesting to see the political dynamics and the climate dynamics that were influencing it. Um, and I think that just residing in a city with a lot to lose, um, not only solidified my interest in studying climate change, but um, really made me understand the urgency in a way that I don't know I could have if I hadn't personally experienced it, which I think is the case with a lot of people, right? They're, it's easy to ignore climate unless you see it, how it impacts the places you love, the people you love, and yourself, selfishly. Um, it's really kind of amazing to get that experience. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of climate education opportunities while I was at Tulane, but I really felt unsatisfied when I was about to graduate with my education in it. And there's a lot to learn online. You can definitely get a pretty good climate science and climate policy education for free online but I felt that I needed some more formal education and climate physics and coding mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to really understand climate in almost every 
aspect and get an interdisciplinary education. So I ended up applying to the program at Columbia, thankfully got accepted, and uh, here we are now. <laughs> so that one lecture was this like moment where you said, I have to do something, this, this is immediate danger. And I'm wondering from the climate communication perspective, what did that professor do how did he communicate this or she? I didn't catch what you said, but um, uh, it was how a he. They, yeah, how did how did he um, grab you by your <laughs> heartstrings or whatever whatever it was to get you so motivated? What did what did they do? I think he was just honest, and I think that was something I had never really encountered before. I think sometimes professors um, not sugarcoat, but maybe don't really show how, you know, the subjects they're teaching have really impacted them. Um, mm. Rather, it's a little bit more sterile and uh, analytical right. rather than right. emotional. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I had never in my life taken a climate science course. So it was really difficult. And I did pretty awfully for the first test or two. <laughs> uh, and somehow it just clicked. I think learning about it and hearing someone who definitely knows what they're talking about tell you what's going on in a way that you haven't heard that before is really powerful. And there was always a lot of humor integrated into discussions, right? Like it was a traumatic class for sure in the truest sense of the word, but it also was nice to laugh and to try to figure out what the solutions are. Uh, I think there was just a lot of creative freedom, even though it was a science class, we didn't always focus on the science, right? We focused on the human aspect and, um, and then also just being available to students. I think the fact that even after I failed the first <laughs> test or two, um, that the professor didn't really give up on my interest and, and kind of took my interest seriously, even though I was very much struggling with Mm -hmm. trying to figure out physics uh, when I had never done that before uh, was really motivating and encouraging and, and, you know, treating people with respect and, you know, like they have what it takes to succeed, even if it's not evident at the time. Well, as an educator, that's something that um, we're supposed to do. We're <laughs> not all of us do it, but we're supposed yeah, to, exactly. we're supposed to be there to, you know, help the student, no matter what level. Right. <laughs> um, exactly. You also said something there, which I thought was um, so true, which is that just humanity in general, right, doesn't seem to, to act or to take things seriously until it happens to them, right? It's this mm -hmm. like self, right? The ego. And, you know, whether it be a health scare, whether it be, you know, an, an accident or climate change, you know? Um, do you have any thoughts about how, as a, as a society, we can change that, you know, psychology of, don't wait till it happens to you, you know? <laughs> but, you know, put your seatbelt on now and let's get, <laughs> let's figure this out. Yeah, I was lucky enough in grad school to take a semester long writing workshop seminar with uh, justice writer, Mary Heglar. And she was very focused on kind of demonstrating the power of a personal story. 
and you know personal narratives and I thought that was really interesting I she created a basically like a 12-week list of reading and it was all themed differently but a lot of what I read was something I just never heard of before and I was you know really struggling with my grad program because it was emotionally very heavy to go into class every day and realize oh we have real issues and having the smartest scientists in the world come at you and say you know we're we're not doing good and we're going to do a lot worse and feeling very helpless and powerless in that situation so it was nice to kind of go into a different environment where I could take what I learned about climate change and climate science and see how climate change really impacted people. And mm. not only reading, you know, narratives from the past couple of years and seeing how the dialogue has shifted from, you know, silence to a more robust language and uh, advancing that dialogue, but also going back and, you know, reading text from James Baldwin and MLK and seeing that even though they weren't explicitly talking about climate change in a lot of those texts, they were. And you could take what they said, you know, decades ago and shift a few words and modify a few things. And you're, you're in 2021, you're in this century. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're really realizing that even though we've come a long way in many aspects, that we're still also in a lot of the same places that we've been yeah. before. And I think that gave me a lot of comfort, right? To know that people have been thinking this kind of stuff for a while and have articulated it was reassuring, but also frightening, right? Like if I could write like James Baldwin and not make a difference, what does that really say? I mean, not that he didn't make a difference, but you know, we're still in a big climate crisis. So it's tough. I think, you know, using the power of personal storytelling, respecting people's stories, listening to people's stories, and kind of identifying yourself in those, you know, text was really a big, um, a big influence. And in not only me feeling more emotionally healthy when it comes to dealing with climate change, but also understanding why I was doing what I was doing and why it matters and how to better communicate it. Yeah, that's personal storytelling is something that um, definitely people who make visual designs or photography or videography seem to be an important part of it. Uh, in one of the other conversations I had, we talked about videography or filming what climate scientists actually do to tell that story of what's going on. They're not just some, you know, making, what is, what is the, uh, some of the recent uh, attacks on climate scientists that they're just rich living off grants, you know, like that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that isn't the reality. Absolutely. No. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah, you, right. You said you felt pretty helpless. Like, um, I think that's common. Um, mm -hmm. I, I feel that way a lot. Yeah. Um, I try to push through that. I try to find little pieces of hope, big pieces of hope, you know, that's even better. Um, what do you do or what do you recommend people do when they're, they're feeling that way, right? And, you know, what can they look to for, to move past that sense of helplessness into, into action or 
or something that um, keeps them motivated. I think it's really important to allow yourself to kind of go through the stages of grief and really be okay with that. I think you can really get stuck in the anger stage or the denial stage. Um, but once you're getting through that and past that, you can kind of have more of an acceptance of the situation. And I think that really frees up your, your mind to doing what you can. Um, there is a really good essay by my old professor, Kate Marble, who is a climate scientist and uh, NASA research scientist. Mm -hmm. And she has an article about, you know, we need courage, not hope to face climate change. And the theory behind her argument is that climate change is definitely going to be bad. Uh, there's no way around getting um, the physics of that mitigated, right? Um, you know, it's a lot is locked in already. And so many around the world, whether people realize it or not yet, are dealing with the traumatic impacts of it. Um, but we need to continue to fight and work really hard, especially if you have um, any amount of privilege in this world, uh, without the assurance of a happy ending. I think that's really something I've had to like internalize. Like it may not work out and it's sad to, you know, live in a place like Louisiana and, and see, see the future almost when you're walking around and feeling that, um, that weight and heaviness around you, but it's worth it anyway, right? Like we need to do it. Um, and if you have the, you know, time and space to get involved and contribute whatever talents or perspectives you have, then you should, um, you know, it's not going to be pretty and it's going to be a really hard fight, but it's the only way to do anything. So I think, you know, really internalizing that thing and the notion that you're doing this because you need to, because you want to, um, and you don't need things to be perfect or you don't need um, that reassurance of a happy ending to keep on going. I think that's really difficult, but yeah. embracing that courage is key. Um, so I encourage everyone to check out her article because she's much more eloquent. Kate Marble. Kate. Uh, yeah, she's, she's a great climate communicator. Um, and I think that her perspective on that notion is spot on. Well, we'll find it and we'll put it in our show notes for everyone. Lovely. So once, once I get through the seven stages of grief, once <laughs> anyone too. does, yeah, once everyone does, um, uh, what do you think like the, the number one thing that just an ordinary person in the country should do to get involved or make an impact, make a positive impact? I think the most important thing that needs to be done by everyday people to fight climate change is to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist and professor at Texas Tech University, has a wonderful TED talk on that concept. And I once again encourage people to find that and watch that. Um, she basically says that, you know, climate is often not talked about either because people don't feel like they are knowledgeable enough to talk about climate or they don't want to talk about climate. 
And I think that's true. But, you know, when it comes to feeling unqualified to talk about climate, like you are the expert of your own life and you know how climate has impacted you. Even if you don't necessarily know the physics of how it's impacted you, you can know, you know, the social aspects of how it's affected your life and the things you love and where you live. Um, So I think that it's important to break the silence on climate and kind of integrate it into all your conversations. Even if, you know, if you're in a state where climate change isn't, you know, really accepted, talking about it as extreme weather or as justice issues is just as important as talking about, you know, the physical dynamics of climate. So I think really trying to figure out ways to talk to your Uber driver about climate change or talk to, you know, your friends or your family about climate does wonders because not only does it help you enhance your own communication skills and your own thinking about the topic, but also helps you empathize a lot more where where people are coming (laughs) from. Um, And I think having that empathy and, and respect for people and how they think about the world, even if you very much disagree with how they think about it can teach you a lot about how you need to be communicating to be successful. We need conversation starters for our, <laughs> you know, sitting on the plane next to someone or sitting in the coffee shop yeah. next to someone. I can't say that you're going to make too many friends, but I think that um, it could be a good experiment for right. you to <laughs> practice your effective communication skills. Um, you know, your invites to parties may decrease, but <laughs> um, you gotta do what you gotta do hey, and then it's a, needed yeah. fight. it's a needed fight so yeah I think another thing that's really key that I think is really overlooked as a climate solution is mm-hmm. supporting and elevating women's voices um, that's a really big thing we can do to take on climate change and it's you know, documented pretty well that women and girls are disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate, especially when it comes to disasters and, you know, having to take care of families. Um, So I think that it's really key that we do what we can where we're at to not only respect women and their voices, but also to provide or encourage that access to education and, you know, in organizations, you know, promote women into leadership positions because you know I don't know if you've heard of Project Drawdown but they say that I was going to say that it's like one of the top two things exactly it is one of the top things you can do and even though you know people on an individual basis don't necessarily have the, the power to you know you know, make most of the boards of climate organizations women. I think that even in your own life, kind of reflecting about how you respect people, um, as well as um, encouraging the organizations or political structures that you are a member of or you, you know, subscribe to, to really go all in on that climate change solution is a great thing that you can do with your privilege and also your free time. <laughs> okay, that's great. Cause you know, my next thought is like our audience is mainly design educators. Mm-hmm. We're pretty privileged, right? Yeah. We, um, we, uh, we're doing something that we love to do and um, helping others and doing it. 
uh, what do you, what role do you think we play in, in helping fight the climate crisis as a, as a design educator? I think that, you know, not only do we need emissions reduction solutions to fight climate change, but we also really need education solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, educating and engaging children, youth, adults in climate solutions and supporting their creativity um, to implement and develop climate action projects in their own personal lives or in their schools or their communities is really key. And I think that also comes down to uh, supporting the creativity of teachers and professors as well. Um, I think that teachers and administrators seem really eager, in my opinion, to take up this challenge. But a common concern and hesitation that I've found is that they need more training and they need relevant learning materials to do so. And that's not often provided. I mean, you can, you know, be a kindergarten teacher and not have that, but you can also be a tenured university professor who doesn't have that support as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Very true. I mean, it's kind of like educating the educators really, right? Mm -hmm. On this. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's a big role for, you know, administrations. And I think it's beneficial to them, right? Because so many youth want to study about climate, but they have very few universities or schools or programs to do so at. Uh, So I think that not only could it help admissions and retention for schools, but it also can really make a positive impact from a university. And it's something that is a uh, a slam dunk PR wise to do so yeah, as yeah. long as they're you know not also taking money from <laughs> fuel companies etc which exactly. is always an uphill battle but I think that educators should really be encouraged to figure out how climate change will impact their field mm-hmm. uh, because chances are it most likely will and then figure out a plan to integrate that into their teaching fully um, and also be really open to listening to what their students want, um, what their hopes are and what their fears are, their concerns, and essentially just create that environment for them to feel empowered to take action and not necessarily, you know, traumatize them or, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, make them feel do scared, right? Like, I think that's a big thing that you know, even climate scientists really do well, right? They have a lot of their own fear and they project that out onto their audiences. And I think that it's important for you, not only as an educator to kind of work through that fear and figure out, you know, I feel this way, but I'm not going to, you know, tell people how to feel, right? It's their, it's their right to feel the way they need to, to cope with something like this. And to instill that kind of fear just isn't helpful in my opinion. So, you know, trying to figure out ways to empower them and facilitate that learning and engagement is crucial for design educators to be doing. Yeah, I like that answer. I mean, I love that answer because that's hopefully what this podcast will be helping our design educator friends do is is learn more about what they can do and how they can help. Um, and, And I also think your answer is, you know, very reminiscent to what you experienced in the class with your mm-hmm. professor, that honesty, I think is super important. That's something I'm taking away from this conversation is I've taught um, climate ethics in a design class. And it was more about what the students felt and how they yeah. were working through it. And they were emotional about it. They were upset, but I never shared my own 
um, mm-hmm. beers. And I think that's something I'll have to do going forward because um, yeah. I think they want to hear from me based on what you're saying that, that I need to be more honest about my fears and what I'm doing. I think students really look up to professors and, and kind of use them as a bellwether for how they should be feeling about a certain topic or subject. And even though you could very much disagree with your professor and some yeah. students may, you know, write you a nasty course review saying he's too original. <laughs> um, I think that it's worth to experiment with, right? Like just even if it's one class, like opening up about how you feel or if you're presenting a lecture or presentation, you know, including a slide or just an anecdote about why you think it's important to be doing this. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting and something that students don't have access to a lot. Like I said before, like subjects are very clinical and cold sometimes and that emotional aspect or just an understanding of feelings is really lacking um, sometimes. But yeah, I encourage you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this seems like a good time for a quick break. We'll be right back after these messages. Designers, we know it's essential to fine-tune our craft in order to lead or create real impact. Yet, what most of us don't focus on is our relationship with the craft itself. Throughout the design process, we might experience creative blocks, burnout, overwhelm, or conflict with team members or stakeholders. Design to Be aims to change that by being a community for designers to grow their emotional intelligence. We take a results-based approach to combining design competencies from mature design organizations, EQ data and research, and relevant meditation techniques. But what is emotional intelligence? EQ, or emotional intelligence, is the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions, and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. And growing your emotional intelligence as a designer, or what we like to call your design EQ, allows you to become more impactful in your role, and ultimately craft a career that is filled with meaning and purpose. You learn design history, theory, and tools from mentors and teachers. Now, it's time to learn how to inquire, dream, navigate, and lead from the true teacher, yourself. As designers, we love to do, we love to create, we love to reinvent, we love to uncover new solutions. What will make these creations, inventions, and solutions even more effective and unique? Are when we learn how to be. Welcome to Design to Be. If you are curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to increase your impact, and craft a career with greater meaning and purpose, head over to designtobe.com. That is D E S I G N T O B E.com. You can take our design process EQ quiz check out our fall cohort of the Design to Be training, or even listen to our podcast, Design to Be Conversation, where the host and founder and CEO of Design to Be, me, Rachel Weissman, has conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. 
you know, as a, as a design educator myself and others who are listening might wonder, what can they bring from climate science, your field, into our design classroom to uh, a set of projects, um, uh, to maybe even a seminar? Like what, what kind of things do you recommend as an educator bring from your field into ours um, to, to kind of continue that you know, conversation that's so important? I think that bringing even just a basic understanding of the science and scope of climate change is really important for design education. Um, it's hard for people to understand what's going on without that knowledge and toolkit to really not only see their role in the problem, but also to see society's role in the problem. Um, you know, design is about society. So it's about how we interact with the world, how we communicate with each other. And if you're not including, you know, the greatest problem that humans are going to be facing for the next who knows how long, um, I think that's a real, a real failure. So I think that understanding the physical world and the physics of what's happening, even if it's really basic, um, is really transformative and also really cool. I think I never saw myself as a science person <laughs> before <laughs> I started to get into this, but I think that, you know, learning about science not only helped me figure out how the world works and why it's so incredible and something worth protecting, but also how I relate to the world. I think that was really a key, right? Like, if I can understand why something's happening, I think that it makes me feel more confident in my ability to explain the situation and also take action, right? I think that's the whole reason I went to grad school is because I needed to learn more. But I also think that you don't need to, you know, get a master's in climate change to, to take action, right? Like it's you good can, to hear. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know, you know, economically, sometimes it's very much not feasible to do so. So I think that finding all the free resources you can, like utilizing, like I said before, like utilizing YouTube and utilizing free courses on climate, listening to lectures about climate, I think that can really help. And for professors, um, I think bringing in people or experts and communities who have been affected by design issues and climate change or climate change is important. Uh, I'm a, like I said before, a big believer in the power of personal narratives and storytelling to facilitate change. So giving some space for those communities and experts to talk and share about their stories and perspectives and experiences can really connect the dots together for design students. And, um, you know, climate scientists are always eager to talk. I think they are always looking <laughs> for people to listen to them. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, some of them are, you know, more high profile than others, right? And don't have the time to come to every uh, lecture or class you give, but you'd be probably surprised at how open they are to helping and teaching students, especially. Um, so I think facilitating those connections, you know, looking for, you know, the climate scientists within your university um, is really a low cost, high reward way to show students, you know, this is not only a career path for you, but it's also a way for you to integrate the things you love, which is design and the earth, hopefully. Um, so, yeah. 
I'm glad that you're volunteering to come part of my class. <laughs> we can find we can find some people for sure. Yeah, but I also love the idea of having people that are or have been or are currently affected by climate issues also there. That's not something I thought of actually, but that seems yeah. like from your storytelling perspective, and as designers a lot of times say they're storytellers, that's arguable and debatable, but. That story, I think, is super important. Not only the science part, but hey, it happened. It's happening right now in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even if you can't get, you know, someone with a crazy personal story that will change your whole life uh, in your classroom or on your Zoom classroom, I think that there's so many articles and storytelling already on the internet. And it's free, usually, if there's not a paywall. So I think that, you know, just putting that in the syllabus can be really influential. Even if students don't necessarily understand why it's relevant to their you know, graphic design course, I think that even if it's just an elective article, it can really help people not only deal with their own emotions about climate, but also see why what they're doing and them trying to integrate climate into their work is so important and beneficial for not only themselves, um, but for their communities and the environment overall. You mentioned syllabus. And so that's a great segue <laughs> into my last question for you. And that is, since you are a designer um, and a climate scientist, I'm wondering if you were asked to teach a design class or project, could be anything um, about this issue um, could be big. Don't worry about funding or, or anything like that. Uh, what kind of what what would that be? How would you how would you uh, kind of meet all of your uh, passions into uh, this class or project? I would probably teach a design thinking class that's related to climate change. Um, I think design thinking has been really helpful in my personal experience to kind of figure out how to tackle problems and to be a creative problem solver. Um, and we touched a little bit on it in grad school, but I feel like it should almost be its own course, uh, probably definitely be its own course, um, using design thinking, um, you know, which is just essentially an approach to building solutions with and for communities closest to the climate crisis is something mm -hmm. that seems to be a really easy way to integrate climate and design. Um, you know, we're not trying to develop huge campaigns, um, right. which also could be a really fun project to work on. But it's more of the philosophy behind what you're doing and how to get from point A to point B. Um, you know, you're scared, your client's scared, but um, how do we overcome that and facilitate something that is not only aesthetically pleasing, but um, not harmful, right? I think something that bothers me a lot about creatives is that there are a lot of creatives who are, you know, needing to work for companies that they don't align with uh, mm -hmm. emotionally or practically. And it's no surprise that, you know, there's a lot of design and PR and advertising agencies that are really intertwined with the biggest contributors to climate change. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's something that we really need to start talking about more. And there are really great organizations that do talk about it, including climate designers, but 
I think putting a lot of pressure on those companies and for universities, you know, not funneling their students to those companies necessarily is, is important, but it's also not feasible sometimes economically. We need jobs. um, And sometimes those jobs are working at places that you don't ethically align with. And I think sometimes doing those jobs in those spaces is really important because I do think that a lot of change organizationally comes from within. Um, mm-hmm. So if you have a lot of employees that feel passionately about you know, cutting ties with fossil fuel advertising, um, it's hard to ignore that. And it's really important that creatives don't cause more destruction than good. Um, I agree. Do, do you think we need um, required design ethics courses or? Always. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, because I agree. We, we, have I think, yeah. we have a required one. So we're a little bit unique. It's definitely important. And even if you're not a designer, it's important to understand the ethics of things. Uh, I've been in a lot of classes at undergrad, even in grad school, where you know, there's a lot of climate solutions being talked about and advocated for without a full understanding of the ethical implications that come along yeah. with them. Yeah. Um, I can think of, you know, like geoengineering, which is something that's really accepted in society um, as a solution. You know, I would say most people who study ethics would say, you know, we need to really step back and focus on this and really sketch out the implications that will come if we do something like this. So I think you can kind of take that into the design world as well, right? Like if you're doing a project with a client and they're greenwashing or they're, you know, not doing something that is beneficial to society, um, kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, like what are the ethics of me working on this project? What are the ethics of this project? And I think being more selective with, um, what projects you take or what you're even learning is is really important not only to maintain your integrity but to also give a better future for the design field right you don't want to be attached to or stuck to uh, organization or um, a partnership that may not be there sustainably for a while so it's good to set yourself up and say, okay, like if we're working ethically, we're making decisions morally, we can go to sleep at night and feel fine. Um, yeah. I think that's really something that a lot of creatives struggle with and it's not their fault necessarily. It's just more of something that needs to be taught when students are younger, um, before they start becoming professionals for them to really you know, walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, rather than graduate and say, oh, like these are my only options and I have to work for <laughs> these six organizations. Oh, gosh, so I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, and also encouraging students to do things independently and creatively, um, you know, even if they have to have a job that they don't agree with, or even if they're in a class that, you know, doesn't support the ethics, like doing that self-learning and designing things that you want to do and, and really fueling your creativity is so important to not only staying sane in the climate crisis, but also to feel useful and not so helpless. Well, thank you for your advice. This has been um, a wonderful time talking with you and I'm taking notes because I've come up (laughs) with a lot of ideas for my fall classes and classes going forward. 
And, yeah, keep me updated. Yeah, well, I think that um, you definitely um, um, went to one of the top of my list here to people to come Skype into my class or Zoom, whatever the <laughs> whatever preferred method you would like to do. Um, and I also really would like to say that I appreciate your idea for a class. Um, I usually see design thinking classes about like entrepreneurship and they use that mm -hmm. process about like the next great widget. And yeah. but I also see some about social issues too, right? And, but I like that semester long idea of let's just use this powerful pro design process that we have and put it to use over the biggest problem we're facing right now um, as a society. Um, yeah, so definitely. I love that idea, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a lot of people about it, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they uh, they invite you in to, to help you do that, help them do that. But that would be great. Yeah, I think teaching students is is really not only like emotionally fulfilling, and it's something that I've got the privilege of doing a few times now, but mm -hmm. it also really helps you grow as well. Um, right, I think okay. it's really important to always be learning from people younger than you and older than you and making sure that you're setting up a generation for not only success, but to really be um, meaningful with whatever they choose to do. Yeah. It's like, uh, I think it's Antoine Jobert. He said to teach is to learn twice. Right. And that's exactly. That's so <laughs> I learned so much every time, like my own faults. I learned things about, the students and I learn things uh, that they teach me out in the world. Mm -hmm. So you got to keep an open mind when you're teaching for sure. Definitely. Well, thank you, Catherine. It's been a wonderful uh, time sitting down with you and uh, I really wish you the best of luck and uh, we will definitely be in touch. And thanks for, for promoting the climate designers group because we're really trying to do what you're saying we should be doing. So <laughs> we appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today to Climify, but don't leave just yet. I've got more goodness for you coming up. Music. As the pandemic has really affected our friends in the performing arts, where they're unable to book shows, tour, or sometimes even get into a recording studio, I thought I'd highlight one at the end of each of our episodes. Since this is a podcast for designers, the musicians featured on each are also designers. Well, I'll turn it over to our first artist to explain who they are and the reasons behind their music. Hi, my name is Alexander Roman. I'm a designer originally from the south side of Chicago. I'm relocated in sunny San Diego. I'm a musician and composer in the band called Free Paintings. Our latest album, Free Paintings for Sale, is out now on all streaming platforms. Our influences are in rock and roll, psychedelic rock, punk and indie music from the 60s until now. I chose the song She's Got Me Riding, influenced by the culture of California.
Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.